0: Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Last week, we started a new series called The Good Shepherd. And I told you that we were just going to spend a couple of weeks in Psalm 23. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to go with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I also would encourage you to grab something that you could take some notes on. I'm gonna reference a number of different scriptures today. That can be your phone uh, if you need to, but like if you wanna just jot it in the margins of your printed Bible, uh, I would encourage you to bring a Bible with you. If you don't have one, we'll give you one at the information center, but just a way for you to make some notes, take some notes there, uh, because I do think there'll be some things today that we'll reference that you may wanna reference back to. But Psalm 23, if you look at any... Uh, kind of study or survey of the scriptures that are Googled the most or searched the most, those that are highlighted the most in online Bible reading plans or programs, Psalm 23 is always near the top of those lists. So it's usually in the top three or four or five of every different category of scriptures that are searched, scriptures that are underlined, highlighted online in digital Bibles. And so it's, it's one that even if you wouldn't consider yourself to be like a Bible scholar, Bible reader on a regular basis, which I definitely would encourage you to do, Uh, it's one that you probably are familiar with the words, the terminology uh, that's there in Psalm 23. And so we started this last week and I told you that each week we're going to read the entire text, which doesn't take long because it's only six verses. And so we read this together. This is the English standard version. So yours may sound or look just a little different with some of the word choices, but this is what it says in Psalm 23, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. So last week, we spent uh, our time together looking at the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And we walked through those first three verses, and I told you that each week, we're going to take a couple of verses, and we're going to walk through them, and we may go verse by verse and phrase by phrase, which is what we're going to do again today, because there's so much written, richness in the text, like in the words that are actually written here. Now, what we said last week is that Psalm 23 was written by David. Now, this is King David of the Old Testament, David of the lineage of Jesus Christ. But prior to him becoming king, he was a shepherd boy, and he was actually anointed to be king from the shepherding field. He was called in from tending the sheep to be anointed to be the next king of Israel. And so he has a context of shepherding as he writes the words of Psalm 23. But it's, it's interesting, and we said this last week, that it's interesting that Psalm 23 is not written from the perspective of the shepherd, even though he was a shepherd, it's written from the perspective of the sheep. And so he, he leads us through some text to help see ourselves as sheep led by the great shepherd. And so today I want us to look at verses four and five and really dig into what God might have for us out of just these two verses of scripture. This is what it says, we just read it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So I told you we're gonna take it phrase by phrase, verse by verse. So we'll start with, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And, and really this is kind of three different phrases. It's three different things. We, we put them all here together because it's important to see them all together. We're gonna to unpack them and kind of put them all back together as we reconstruct it. But, but I wanna just look at that ending where it says, the valley of the shadow of death. If you know what a valley is, raise your hand. It's embarrassing if your hand's not raised. I'm gonna be honest. It is embarrassing if your hand was not raised. If you don't know, ask a neighbor. But like a valley is a place between two high points, right? It's, it's two mountains, it's kind of higher terrain, and then you come down into a lower place, right? So I mean, I'm not, I'm not reinventing science here or geography. Like we just recognize that a valley is not a mountaintop. But our human existence is all about trying to figure out how do we live from mountaintop to mountaintop? Like we're trying to figure out how to go from good thing to good thing. We wanna have spiritual high to spiritual high. We, we experience the presence of God, the goodness of God. They sang my favorite song today. Like all those things. And it's like, how do I get from this moment to the next spiritual high, from this good place to the next good place, from this good thing to the next good thing? Like I don't want to experience anything hard or difficult. I wanna avoid all those hard, difficult things And yet we recognize that valleys do exist in the terrain of the world, but also the terrain of our life. The journey that we are on, if we were the writer of our story, which I do not recommend that, we would avoid all valleys. We would just decide we're only going to do good things, only going to be around good people. We're only going to do things that excite us and make us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. But recognizing that the shepherd, if we give him permission, is the Lord of our life, the leader of our life, the the, the one who guides and directs us, then we recognize that if the Lord is my shepherd and he directs my path, there are times that he leads me through valleys. And in those valley seasons, I don't have to necessarily pray, God, get me out of this as fast as you possibly can, because he could have, but I can pray, God, what do you need to teach me here in this valley? What is it that I can learn in this valley? What is it, why did you bring me here and what am I supposed to know? Now, that's a difficult type of prayer. I'm not going to make this sound like the the worst valley experience, but I hate to wait, right? I just hate to stand in line. I hate to sit in traffic. I've said it a number of times. I would rather be driving backwards but still moving than sitting still going the direction I'm supposed to go. So we're going to cut through parking lots. I don't know if that's illegal. If you're a cop, then I didn't say that, but like, like we're just going to keep moving as best we can cuz I hate to wait. But over the years I genuinely have tried to pray this prayer whenever I find myself stuck. God, what do you want me to teach what do you want to teach me right now? What is it I'm su- sometimes it's just patience. <laughs> it's just be patient. And sometimes it's like just look around and see the people that are standing in line with you and maybe just be nice cuz they're frustrated too. And like the other day I was standing in a line And a guy in front of me yelled at the person behind the counter because of how slow it was going. And it was not that guy's fault. Like, I'm not saying there couldn't have been other things somewhere in the past. Technology could have been better. The systems could have been better. But the guy behind the counter was really trying his best. But the guy in front of the counter was yelling at that guy as if he was trying to steal money from him, which he was just trying to do his best. And so I had two thoughts. My first thought was, I'm about to say something to this guy. But I thought, he's bigger than me, he probably beat me, I don't want to do that, I don't want to go home with a black eye, and so, so I let that thought pass, okay? But the second thing is, when I get up there, I'm going to try to change the whole atmosphere. So that guy walks off, and I walked up, and I patted the counter, like kind of in a loud way, almost a little bit obnoxious, and I just said, you're doing a fantastic job, just because that guy wasn't out and I wanted to be passive aggressive, Right? I just said, hey, you're doing a fantastic job. I really appreciate the way you just handled somebody that was coming after you like it was your fault. Like, I just wanted him to know, like, I watched. Like, in that moment, I was just saying, like, God, how might you use me? I I don't like to wait. It took longer for me to get to the front. But, like, Lord, what are you trying to teach? Sometimes in valley moments that you and I wouldn't choose for ourselves, God can use us in really special ways. But not only can he use us to do something, he can also teach us to change something on the inside of us. And so sometimes we're walking through valleys, even though we wish we could stay at the mountaintop. In, in, in the gospel accounts, there's, there's, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the, the most succinct places to see the life and ministry of Jesus. And some stories are contained in all four gospels. They're like the same story from a different perspective. But some stories are only contained in one or two or three of the gospels. And there's a really great story that shows up in three of the four gospels where Jesus, you know, he had the 12 disciples. Those 12 came from a group of 72 that he sent out two by two at one time. Those 72 came from a group of about 500. And those 500 came from the hundreds and really thousands of people that were around for a lot of the teaching, miracles, things that he did. And so the 12 are kind of the closest group that hung out with Jesus on a regular basis. But of those 12, there were three, kind of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And there's a story that's contained in three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And in the story... Jesus takes the three up to the top of a mountain. In your Bible, the heading of that section of scripture may be the Mount of Transfiguration or the Mountain of Transfiguration. That's not its geographical name. That's a reference point for the story. And so when he takes them up there, this amazing thing happens. Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John. And then Moses shows up and Elijah shows up. And the, the demeanor, the, the, kind of the, the, the presence of Jesus' face, the, there's a brightness about him. His whole appearance changes. He's transfigured before them. And he has this light about him, this, this brightness about him. It's very similar to when God appears. Amazing experience of the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And Moses and Elijah are there. And so if you, if you, I love God's word because I love how these things connect. Moses is the connection to the law of the Old Testament. Elijah is the connection of the prophets of the Old Testament. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things in the New Testament. So at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are getting to see all of the Bible in these three guys. The law, the prophets, and Jesus. And Peter recognizes this is special. This is like, can we just stay here? I know there's people down there. We love them. We like them, but let's leave them there. Can we build tabernacles or tents and just hang out right here at the top of this? Like, this is special. Like, Jesus, can we stay right here? This would be awesome. And Jesus, almost like a loving parent, when a child says something to you that doesn't quite make sense, he doesn't even respond to him. He doesn't doesn't even kind of acknowledge what Peter's saying. Moses and Elijah disappear, and look at this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus leads them from a mountaintop experience, almost one of the most supernatural spiritual things they could have ever experienced. He leads them back down the mountain. Why? Because you can't live at the top of mountains you got to be willing to live down the valley. Now, here's what you need to recognize. If you keep reading this story, and if you read the uh, the, the, the interaction that happens in Mark chapter 9, it probably is expressed as clearly as possible. Jesus and the guys come back down the mountain, and they get down, and the rest of the disciples are trying to perform a miracle. And this father comes up to Jesus, and then they have a conversation, and then Jesus does the miracle that he's seeking. Why? Because the power of God isn't just evident on mountaintops. It's also present in the valleys. His power is the same. While you and I crave mountaintop experiences, he is the same God in the high moments and the low moments and the moments in between. And so we've got to recognize that sometimes our lives include these valley moments that we would not choose for ourselves. But this was not just a valley. Scholars believe that this might have been a reference to a specific valley that David would have experienced as a shepherd boy. He might have actually walked through it chasing after some of the sheep that got lost from the flock that he was tending himself for his father on the backside of the hill. And so they, he, they think that he might have been referencing like a very specific valley near his home. But the valley that he describes here in Psalm 23 is a valley of the shadow of death. Shadows are funny things, aren't they? Because when you're trying to utilize light sources to create shadows, they're fun. Like you can, you can use your hands and make shapes and frogs and all kinds of things up on the wall and your kids laugh about it. When they're seven, eight, nine years old, they think it's the most amazing thing that mom or dad can make shadows up on the wall that look like you know animals and all these different things. But those same children at two o'clock in the morning when they see the moon creating a shadow of the tree in the backyard across the wall of their bedroom, don't remember that mom and dad could manipulate the light and so maybe something else. They just think it's a monster in their room. Because shadows are funny things. And it's easy for us to look at seven and eight and nine and ten-year-olds and go, wow, man, I wish they would just remember shadows aren't real. But what shadows are we afraid of? What things that aren't real, that don't have any power, do we spend a ton of time worried about? Sociologists and psychologists tell us that perhaps as little as seven or eight percent of the things that we worry about actually happen. Which means 92 or 93% of the things that we worry about that consume our minds, that keep us physically like, I can't, like, they don't even come to pass. We're worried about things that don't even happen. And so we spend so much time and so much energy, physically, mentally, emotionally, like bound up in fear and in worry about things that don't happen because they're just shadows. And the enemy only has like three tricks. You know that, right? He makes us think he's got like a million things and it's this equal battle of good versus evil. Listen, the battles that we fight are real. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and and evil things of darkness. Like they are real battles. But when I was a kid, my brother and I loved to watch wrestling. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you still watch wrestling. But I, I watched a ton of wrestling when I was a little kid. And the guy that lived next door to us, he was a retired gentleman, and he lived with his kids, and he had more money than I had, and so he would buy all the wrestling pay-per-view events, and me and my brother would go over and watch it with him and his kids, and it was awesome, because we'd go watch these pay-per-view wrestling things, and then we would go home, and me and my brother would, like, drop drop off the, you know, turnbuckle, and then we'd get grounded for a couple weeks, but it's like, no, it's awesome, you know. No, do but we would watch, and here's what I recognized pretty quickly. I heard this a few years ago, and it kind of puts so much perspective and clarity into what we know about wrestling. It's not fake. Those guys are real good athletes, and, and they get hurt, and they, they really do amazing kind of feats of athleticism. It's not fake, but it's fixed. They know who's going to win when they start, and the same is true in the spiritual battles that we're fighting. The, the, the end is already determined, but the enemy would try to convince you that we're trying to wait and see how this plays out to see who wins, The goal here is not to wait and see who wins. It's just to live our lives determining do we wanna be on the winning team or the losing team. The result has already been determined. And so the enemy would try to use shadows and distract you and and try to take and, and hide part of the light source to make us afraid of some things that are not true as he tries to distort truth in our lives. He tries to convince us of things that we should be worried about or afraid of. It's these valleys of shadows death but charles spurgeon says this he said the shadow of a dog cannot bite and the shadow of a sword cannot kill and the shadow of death cannot destroy us and yet we are terrified of shadows these things out there that appear bigger you ever been walking down a sidewalk in the sun or a light source is behind you and you think you're 11 or 12 feet tall and like, you're not 11 or 12 feet tall the shadows are magnified. They seem bigger than they actually are. And the thing that you're worried about is actually about this small, but we give it this much energy in our minds and our, and our bodies. And Shadows aren't, aren't real. And so we walk through these valleys of shadows, but what is a shadow of death? What is a shadow of death? I don't say any of the next few minutes to scare you, but let's just talk about death for a second. Can we do that? Aren't you glad you showed up to church today to talk about death? Death's a real thing. Some of you have been touched by death. I've experienced that for myself. My mom passed away from cancer when she was 48. Man, it was a traumatic experience for a couple of years watching her get reports that seemed good so we'd get our hopes up and then we'd get a worse report. To hear the doctor say there's nothing else we can do. Death's a real thing because we experience loss. There's a void in our lives there's an absence. I remember she passed away in the spring. And that, later that Thanksgiving, that, that fall, we were together with her brothers and sister and their families and my dad and my brother and our families. And my uncle made a statement. He said, we're never more aware of her absence than when we're all together. Like death is so real and it feels so personal and real. And some of you have walked that journey and you know what it feels like. And you know like the pain that you experience but let me just remind you of something that's difficult for us in the human experience to wrap our minds around. God views death differently than we do. He just does. A mentor of mine a number of years ago made this statement, and I've remembered it and I've said it in a number of funerals when I've been speaking, but like of all the things that humanity has figured out how to deal with, we've just never figured out how to deal with death. But scripture tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. It doesn't feel precious to us, but, but there's something about it to God that it has a different perspective, a different idea, a different thought. Why would that be? Because to be absent from the body, Scripture tells us, is to be present with the Lord. Like we grieve, according to First Thessalonians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We hope because we know what is ahead. We hope because we know that our friends and our family members, those that have passed before us, we know that where their eternity is held. And so we can cling to that hope. And yet we've very much experienced the pain and sorrow here on earth of death. But here's what we know. Here's what we know. The reason that we walk through valleys of shadows of death is because death for those who are followers of Jesus Christ is different because of the death of Jesus Christ. He experienced death. Death, but because of him, we actually get to experience eternal life. And so there's a shadow of death that exists that is different for followers of Jesus Christ. And so when we're walking through valleys of shadows of death, it is, it is so important for us to recognize that, like, what we feel on earth is only a part of what's actually happening. 1 First, uh, First Corinthians 15. 51 through 57 says this, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will all come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is not a permanent sting. And so even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death... What is the next phrase in this passage? I will fear no evil. If you know your history books, the Great Depression began in the late 1920s. And in 1932, there was a presidential election and Franklin Delano Roosevelt was running against Herbert Hoover. And if you can go back and read these interesting like news articles from around the country because they would have these campaign events and they would have these debates where both candidates would give speeches and they would you know, kind of debate different issues And over and over and over again, it was like people would leave those campaign events and they had no idea what Franklin Delano Roosevelt stood for, but they really liked him. And Herbert Hoover was giving a lot of things about different, you know, different things that they should believe in and different things that they should cling to in the midst of the Great Depression. But like Franklin Delano Roosevelt was just kind of rallying people around the idea that they could like him and they could have hope and that the best was yet to come. And he wins the election. And in his inauguration speech in 1933, it was almost like he flipped a switch. Once he was in office, then it was like, okay, now I want to help tell you something else. I actually want to give you a proper perspective of what we're facing as a nation. the most famous line of his inauguration speech in 1933, he says this, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, Unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified, and paralyzing. Some of you know what fear like that feels like. You've experienced unbelievable fear because of some real events in your past or the fear of and the worry of what might come in your future. It leaves us unable to advance. It compels us to retreat, to retreat to darkness, to retreat from relationships, and to retreat from progress. But if, you're, if you are afraid, if you don't advance, I want you to think for just a moment what happens. Because what the good shepherd does, according to Psalm 23, is he, even though, all the good things, the Lord is my, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But fear paralyzes us and we get stuck in a valley of a shadow of death. Instead of walking through it, instead of learning what we should learn and experiencing what we should experience and allowing the Good Shepherd to lead and guide us to the other side of this valley, fear paralyzes us to the point that we get stuck in a valley. And we get stuck looking at shadows for so long that shadows seem real to us. And the truth is distorted in our mind. And we begin to believe things that are not true. And we listen to the truths of the enemy, which are actually lies. And we lose sight of the truths of God's word, which are unchanging. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But what happens is, because we are afraid, we don't walk through it. We set up camp in it. And we just stay in a valley we were never intended to live in, and we get stuck. And and I want us to recognize that like that is not what you are supposed to do. You may have to walk through it, but you should not live there. Why? I will not fear, for you are with me. You're not by yourself. He leads and guides us. He takes you by the hand. He takes me by the hand. And he leads us through. He leads us out of these valleys with shadows that scare us to death. I will not fear for you are with me. I told you you might want to take some notes. I want to give you a couple of scripture references if fear is something that you really do wrestle with on a really regular basis. We'll hit these pretty quickly, but I'll try to reference them so that you can make note of them. They'll be up on the screen. But I just want to give you a few scriptures about fear and, and a proper perspective of fear. Here, here's the first one. Isaiah 41 and 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. First John chapter four, verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. When you truly know, when you truly believe that God loves you unconditionally, there's nothing to be afraid of. Psalm 34, four says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Joshua chapter one, verse nine says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I will fear no evil for you are with me, the psalmist said. The shepherd's presence doesn't eliminate the presence of evil. Not yet in this story. But the shepherd's presence can eliminate the fear of evil. We don't have to be afraid anymore. And there are some wonderful Christian people right now who are scared to death of everything they see going on around the world. And I recognize there's a lot. There's a lot. We referenced this a little bit last week. We're talking about stillness. I don't know that we're equipped to handle all the information that's available to us all at the same time, every waking minute of the day. But if you look around in America, there's a lot of things happening. And maybe you're saying like, how in the world did we get here so fast? You look at the upcoming elections and maybe it feels like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Herbert Hoover. You like some, you don't like some, but you have no idea what any of them are saying. It breeds fear in our hearts. Like, what, what are these elections gonna, how's this gonna happen and what's gonna play out before us? And we look on the global scene. We see what's taking place, not just in the Middle East right now, but in other places, as it seems like nations are aligning with one another, maybe in greater ways than they ever have. And it feels like we might be like on the verge of, like something big, if it's not already happening. Like, like you see on the news and we read the stories and we're trying to figure out what is true and what is not, but it all breeds fear in us and it, it conjures up these things like we just don't know how to deal with it. We're not sure how to process it. And, and here's what I would just remind you of. It's, it's a lot like we described earlier, like the events of scripture are foretelling the things that we are seeing play out before us. As nations fall and nations rise and economies collapse and they rise up for seasons and there's wars and rumors of wars, like these things are taking place, but it is not catching God by surprise. He already told us this was coming. And let me just say to you, like if you came in today and you, you are afraid of all the things that are taking place around you, be filled with hope today that you serve a God who is not shocked by all these things. Like, we should be the most hope-filled people on the planet. Like, we should just have this sense of hope and faith. As I watch these things play out in the Middle East right now, two truths can coexist. Two truths can coexist. I I can stand with Israel, which we do as a church. I I can stand with God's covenant people as they have the right to defend themselves. I, I can absolutely stand and believe that God's chosen people have the right to do what they need to do to protect the covenant promise of the land that he gave to them in the scriptures. But my heart can also break for innocent lives that are being lost on both sides and all three, like innocent people's lives. Like I can have compassion for that because there was a terrorist group that came and attacked the nation of Israel. And like terrorist groups do that are different than nation states, nation states stand in front of one another and war against each other. Terrorist groups do their act and they go and hide behind innocent people and the only way to eradicate terrorism sometimes is you gotta go around them or you gotta go through them. My heart breaks for everything that I see playing out and yet I am filled with hope because I read these events in scripture and I recognize that if I flip to the end, no matter what the enemy tries to tell me, I know how this story ends if I'm not sure how every detail plays out. I know what the end result can be. I am filled with hope. I am filled with confidence, not in my ability to understand very complex things that are taking place on the global scene and nationally and domestically and even locally. I don't understand all the dynamics, but I'm filled with hope because my faith is found in God Almighty. And that should be our posture. That should be our posture that I am filled with hope. I do not have to fear evil because he is with me. God knew what was taking place. In John 16, he said this through his son Jesus. In verse 33, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You can take heart, you can have peace, you can have confidence, you can have hope, you can have faith in the midst of the trouble that's taking place around us. This is not just something that a pastor says, it's a promise from the Lord that even in the midst of trouble, you can experience the peace of God. And then he says this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm not walking off the stage, I hid something up here. See if I can get to it. I was given this a few years ago. This is not ancient, I assume it was maybe for sale in a Cracker Barrel somewhere, you know. But this is something similar to a shepherd's staff. Scholars have debated over the years if this psalm is referencing one specific instrument that fulfilled two different roles or if we're talking about two different things. So for the purposes of our time together, because I have this, it was given to me to represent the call for Corey and I to shepherd this house as we follow the good shepherd. Like It's was, it was a very meaningful gift. We're just going to say it doesn't really matter if it's a separate rod and a separate staff. This staff can represent both things because it has the ability to perform at least two different functions. The shepherd, while tending the flock, could have seen the enemies, the other animals, those who might come and want to steal a sheep. He could have taken the rod portion of that shaft and he could have fought off the enemy. He could have pushed away those that were trying to steal and to kill and to destroy the flock. So there's a rod, there's some, some thing, some instrument, some weapon that can allow him to go on the offensive and to protect those that are under his care. But there's also this part. We talked last week about sheep just being wanderers that run off sometimes because something else catches their eye, and so they might find themselves in a ditch And he needs to lean down and he needs to hook a portion of them and pull them up to safety. He he sees that maybe they fall into rushing waters and not the still waters that he's leading them to. And they get trapped out in the water and being carried by the current. And he extends this to grab a hold of them and pull them back to safety. There's a rod and a staff and it comforts the sheep to know that the shepherd is watching out for them. It's for their safety and their security and for their protection. But for... Sheep, that makes sense. What does that look like for me and you? It wasn't a wooden staff or a wooden rod. It was an old wooden cross that provides both of the same functions for us. Jesus carried his own cross. I'm going to hand this down right here for you, Kinley. He carried his own cross up to Calvary. And as Jesus, the blameless sacrifice, the lamb who was led to be slain, as he hung... But it was also for your salvation, to protect you, to pull you up out of the places that we had chased on our own, out of our own fleshly desires. And he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ. He, he brings us back into the fold. And we can read about these two functions that play out, but we don't even have to go to the Gospels and we don't have to go to Calvary. We can go to the Old Testament and the prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the face of the earth. And we can read this in Isaiah chapter 53, verses five and six. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon the sins of us all. The old rugged cross brings comfort to me because it went on the attack and it destroyed the enemy who was trying to destroy me. And the old rugged cross provided for my salvation as he pulled me up into the family of God. I'm so thankful for the comfort that it provides me. Which brings us to the last phrase as we close our time today. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is a great reminder that we started this psalm in the valley of the shadow of death. Like today, we, we started in verse four. We were in a valley of shadows and death and like it, it's scary. But one verse later, we're sitting at a table that's been prepared for us. It's a great reminder for all of us how quickly God can change our circumstances. How God can take us from some places that feel like they're evil and hard and they can, they, they, they can be really, really difficult for us to walk through And in the moment, God can change all of that. You don't know how you can fix it, but he can. You you, you just got the doctor's report, but he has a different report. Like, you just know what the bank account says, but he's Jehovah Jireh. Like, he can change your circumstances from walking through a valley of the shadow of death to sitting at a table he's prepared for you. He has that power. He has that ability. But God views tables differently than I view tables. Because when I have a table, I invite people to sit at that table that I like most of the time. If you're sitting at my table, I like you. Or I think I can. Right? But what we read here is that he's prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That God invites people to tables that maybe we wouldn't invite that the good shepherd leads and guides our lives, but we aren't like the only people that God loves. We know that, right? We aren't the only people he died for. We aren't the only people he's directing as we give him control. He's got a big table. And some of the people that are sitting at that table that he's prepared for us are people that you and I may not get along with. and We may not see eye to eye on everything but he's prepared that table for us in the presence of our enemies. And like when I read through that, I'm just reminded again and again that Jesus went and he sat with sinners and he sat with tax collectors and he went to Zacchaeus' house and he allowed Mary Magdalene to anoint him at a dinner party because God views tables differently than we view tables. He's prepared a table before us. But if we remember where we started in Psalm 23, it was the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he leads me. He leads me. But when we get right here to verse five, you anoint my head with oil. We went from this distant thing as we give him control and he leads us through valleys of shadows of death and he invites us to his table. When we accept that invitation, we come and sit at his table. There's this really personal interaction where he anoints us. You anoint my head with oil. You fill my, cup. you chose me, you saved me, you called me, you heal me. You rescued me. You fought off the enemy on my behalf. Like there's this really personal interaction that takes place. You refill my cup when I feel empty. Not just to a place where it's just kind of full. Like you overflow my cup with your blessings and your goodness on my life. You are not distant. You are not removed. You're sitting at the table pouring the drink for me. You're anointing my head, healing my wounds. That's the kind of relationship that God is inviting us into here in Psalm 23. Shepherd desires to have a personal connection with you. He is close. He's not distant. He's close. And because he's close, we don't have to be afraid. Even when we walk through shadows that scare us to death, even when we're in the valley, we can walk through it because he is with us. We don't have anything to be afraid of. He's invited us to his table. So I'm just going to ask you right there just to bow your head, close your eyes just for a moment. Conclude our time together today. Just this moment of reflection. God, what are you speaking to me? What are you saying to me out of Psalm 23? What is your word communicating to us? And if today you would say, Jeremy, for me, it's it's I'm not I'm not saved. I'm not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I need him to forgive my sins and to be my Lord and to lead and guide and direct my life. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Nobody's looking. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else? And now if you would say, Jeremy, for me, I've got fear, like, 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 a, like a big amount of fear right now in my life around something. And it's paralyzing. I don't know how to deal with it. I'm not sure how to wrestle it away. I, I don't, I've, I've prayed about I just I just need God to help me with some things that I'm really afraid of right now. If that's you, would you lift your hand? Nobody's looking around. Thank you so much. So many of us today. So many of us today. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you hear us when we pray. You respond to us. You're close to us. God, I pray now for every person that's acknowledged their need for you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. God, would you forgive their sins, be their Lord, And if that's you and you raised your hand today, you you acknowledge, I need God to do this work. Confess with your mouth. Like, hey, God, I, I confess, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. I give you permission to lead my life. Like, if you confess that, we believe he does that work immediately. God, we thank you now for those decisions that have been made. God, now I pray a special prayer for those who are afraid. I pray, God, that you would give them a sense of your peace, your nearness to them, the strength of your righteous right hand that we read about. God, if nothing else, if they forget every scripture and everything that's been said, if they don't remember the songs that have been sung, God, when they leave this place, would they be reminded that they don't have to be afraid because you are with them. God, thank you for your closeness to us today. But I pray for victory from fear. I pray that it wouldn't consume us. I pray that we wouldn't give in to shadows. We wouldn't allow the enemy to distort the things that are true, the things that you have said to us to cause us to believe some things that are not true. God, rid our hearts of unnecessary worry, fear, anxiety, doubt. God, fill us with a sense of peace and hope because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day and God bless.